welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. Uh, First of all, last week, we were in Mark chapter 13. We're working our way through the gospel of Mark. Mark 13 is one of the the passages in the Bible that touches on end times type of topics. And so as part of studying through Mark 13, I introduced this uh, little pamphlet called Four Views of the End Times. It's not a vineyard publication. I don't don't actually, it's put out by Hendrickson Publishing. But it's a little pamphlet that that goes through four primary schools of thought in terms of the ways that people, uh, Christians, come to the passages on end times and how they understand those. And so um, most of us, uh, if we, if, unless we deliberately exposed ourselves to multiple views, most of us have probably been shaped by one view or two that we've heard, you know, in the different faith environments we've been in. But it's, I think it's really helpful to, to see the scope of those. So um, you can order this online from Amazon. I got this one on Am- from Amazon for $4. You can get it on your Kindle for $3 if you want to save a buck and a tree. Uh, and we also have some available out at the bookseller. If you're on campus out in Heritage Hall this morning, uh, we ordered about 25 copies in. So if you'd like to pick one up there, you can do that. And if the $4 is, um, is a burden for you, uh, just ask Rihanna and we'll, we'd be glad to just provide that. That's on us. So there you go. That's Mark 13. This week, we're actually in Mark 14. Uh, and I want to start with a question. This is a rhetorical question. You don't have to, to answer this like, like calling it out to me or typing it in online. But I do want you to think about it. And here's the question. Why is it that Jesus had to die? Why did Jesus have to die? Now, Here's what I find. I find that there's things that I think I know until I go to articulate them or I go to write them down, and suddenly I realize that it's a little more fuzzy than what I thought. Maybe it's kind of more abstract. And here's the thing. The the reality of Jesus as a historical figure, a a Jewish man who walked in Palestine 2,000 years ago, who was crucified by the Romans, that's a historical fact. Nobody contests that. But the question is, why are 2,000 years later, are we gathering to talk about him? And this is happening all over the world. What we're doing right here today in various fashions and expressions and different types of gatherings, this is happening all over the world about a man who died 2,000 years ago. And the question is, why did he have to die? Now, in that 2,000 years, Many followers of Jesus have, have, have made their attempt to answer that question, some remarkably well, brilliantly well. And so there has been countless books written about why Jesus had to die. There has been uh, councils that were held. There has been creeds that were, you know, fashioned. There has been, uh, I mean, there's been battles fought, unfortunately. There's been systematic theologies that have been written, doctrines that have been created very meticulously. But here's here's the thing that's interesting. Up until this point in Mark, and we're getting close to the end, Jesus has never explained why he has to die. 
He's given one hint of it. In Mark 10, there's this pivotal moment where Jesus goes from being a hidden Messiah to being a revealed Messiah. And that's kind of the pivotal turning point in the book of Mark. And in that time, he says, he acknowledges that he is the Messiah. His disciples say, you're the Christ. And he says, yes, I am. And then he says this. He says, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Okay, that's the first kind of telegraphing of his death. To give his life as a ransom for many. That's the, as a ransom for many. Five words. That's the only explanation he's given up until this point. And as we pick up, it is, he has hours left before his crucifixion. It's, his crucifixion will happen. It will, the arrest, the betrayal, the... Uh, the, the trial, the scourging, the crucifixion itself, that all happens in the wee hours of, of, of Friday morning and, and into the early afternoon. As we pick up, it's Thursday morning and then Thursday night. And so he's got hours left, and this is the first time he explains to his disciples. He's been preparing them for the fact of his death. Ever since that pivotal moment where he said, the Son of Man has come not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, he's been telling them, I'm going to die told him multiple times bluntly, as bluntly as he possibly can. So he's preparing them for the fact, but he hasn't ever explained why. And when he does, when he at last in these final hours, when he gives them a reason why, he doesn't make a lecture. He doesn't um, hand them a systematic theology that he's been typing out over the last, you know, several weeks or years. He doesn't give them a systematic theology. He gives them a meal. He gives them something to receive, something to participate in, something to engage in. And it's not just any meal. It's a meal that had been practiced by their their people for 1,500 years at that point. A meal that was rich in meaning, a meal that was rich in tradition, in history, in symbology. There was so much wrapped up in this meal. And he reinterpreted it and gave them that meal and said, this is why. This is why. Now, I'm going to suggest that on the evening that they received that meal for the first time, they didn't understand. But because it was something that was kinetic, that was experiential, something that was rooted in something they had done their whole life but was now being changed, they had a chance to reflect on that the rest of their earthly life and to soak into the meaning and to lean into that. So as we pick up, we're going to be picking up in... um, In chapter, again, chapter 14, I titled this message, Follow Me by Eating My Body, which if that sounds offensive or borderline offensive to you, so much more so to them. But here's our context. Uh, Real quickly, two things. It's Passion Week for Jesus. For Jesus, it's Passion Week. That means, or sometimes we call it Holy Week. That means it's it's the week that's moving towards his, his, again, arrest, uh, trial, scourging, crucifixion. That's, that's his passion, that, that final moment. But, so this is Passion Week. It's all moving towards that. But it's also the, um, the Passover week for all of Israel. Okay, so Passover is the pinnacle of the Jewish calendar. There was multiple festivals and feasts that the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people observed throughout the year and throughout the centuries. Passover was the pinnacle, and it was a one-week-long festival. And it all built up to, to the, um, it's also known as the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Here's the, some amazing things happened during Passover. Uh, 
faithful Jews always tried to observe Passover, to eat the Passover meal in Jerusalem. So during this week, this one week every year, the population of Jerusalem would swell to, to maybe as much as five times its normal size. Now, Jerusalem was not geographically a big city, but as many as 100,000 extra people would come and just fill the city. And this was a time of celebration. This was a time, this was not a, a you know, depressing holiday. It was, this was, I mean, we just went through Thanksgiving, right? What do you do at Thanksgiving? You invite friends and family, and you have a, a, a joyful meal. And it's this, like, thing you build up for, you anticipate. The time that Jesus has this meal with his disciples had been practiced for 1,500 years. So, as we pick up, um, again, think of it as a celebration meal, maybe a little bit like our Thanksgiving. Um, as we pick up, it's Thursday morning. It's the day where they prepare before the Passover meal on Friday, Mark 14, 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, this is an important part of the meal. What do you eat on Thanksgiving? Turkey. What do you eat at Passover? A lamb. Specifically, uh, a lamb that was one years old and spotless. A lamb without any sort of blemish. Okay. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? He sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room or furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. The disciples sent out, and they went to the city, and they found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So Jesus is about to have Passover with his disciples. This was typically a meal that you shared with your family. And Jesus and his followers, they're, they're acting like family. They've become a spiritual family. This shows the, the bond of their connection, their intimacy. It's kind of like Friendsgiving, but it's, they're getting together. And here's the thing, every Passover, every Passover over the last 1,500 years when people celebrated Passover, it was always a callback to the very first Passover, okay? It was always a callback. Uh, it was a scripted meal, meaning that there was, there was things that were spoken in the course of that meal. You know, as we get together for Thanksgiving, there's the, the meal, there's a set thing, you know, we, depending on your family, you know, you're going to have turkey and dressing and potatoes and cranberry. Maybe there's a signature meal that, that's part of your family. In our family, there's a cranberry dish that we make that's, that we, we always tell the story of my great, or my, my grandmother, my, my kid's great-grandmother, because it was her recipe that she was persuaded to make. Anyway, long story. But there's tradition, right? There's tradition that we tell every year. Well, for 1,500 years, the, the Jewish people have been telling the story, and there was a script when they had the meal. There was things that were spoken by the head of the household, there were things that were responded by those that were sitting there eating. There were songs to sing. There were actions to take. And through this, they annually relived the story of their ancestors. Through this, they identified themselves with their ancestors' experience. And so here, there's, there's a two-sided nature to this. One, they were identifying themselves with the slavery that their ancestors experienced. 
And so part of the meal was to engage in that, to experience that there was hardship that our ancestors faced that was, that was desperate, that God rescued our ancestors from. And we have, we have hardship as well. So, so it was identifying with that, but it was also identifying with the fact that their ancestors were rescued. So um, we're going to take a moment, and part of that meal, and we're going through it very briefly, a, a, a typical Passover meal or Passover Seder is what it was called, would, would take the whole evening. And we're, we're going through it kind of more uh, briefly this morning. And Mark actually goes through it pretty briefly. Mark doesn't give a whole lot of detail to it. So we're going to go through it pretty quickly. But one of the things that happened at every Passover meal every year is the story got retold. The story of how, of how God redeemed his people. And oftentimes it would be, a, it would be either a, a recital or a reading from the Exodus story, from like the first four chapters of Exodus. And they would tell the story. So this morning, as a way of doing that in a more succinct way, we're going to watch a Bible project video that tells the story of, of Passover. And I want you to pay attention. It moves really quickly. I want you to pay attention to the meal that is celebrated in the middle of the story. But this is, this is the ancient story. This is the origin story. You might think of it as the prequel to every other Passover. This is the story that got told every year for 1,500 years. Let's talk about the book of Exodus. Now, you're probably familiar with this book because of the epic story of Moses leading Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Yeah, but that's just the first half of the book. The second half has Moses giving the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these blueprints for making a sacred tent. Now, right here in the middle is the story that connects these two halves together, and it all takes place at the foot of a famous mountain. Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. So the first thing we have to remember is we're continuing the story from Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis, God promised Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Genesis ends with Abraham's family down in Egypt. When Exodus begins, 400 years have passed, the family grows and becomes the people group now called Israel. But there's this huge problem because the Israelites are enslaved to this king of the Egyptians, a guy called Pharaoh. This guy is really bad news. Yeah, he's horrible. He, he disregards their humanity. He brutally enslaves them. And he even orders that all of the Israelites' sons should be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. He wants to wipe these people out. He's the worst character in the Bible so far. Here's where we meet an Israelite woman who wants to save her son. And so she does throw him in the river, but safely in this little reed basket. And Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby and takes him as her own. And this is the boy who grows up to become Moses, the man who will rescue Israel from slavery. So Moses grows up and one day, much later in his life, he has this crazy encounter with God where he comes across a bush that's on fire but it isn't actually burning up. And God speaks from the bush, and he appoints Moses as the man he will use to deliver Israel. So Moses goes to Pharaoh to tell him this, this news that God wants his people free. And Pharaoh, he just pretty much laughs at him. He's like, Who, who's this God, Yahweh? And in fact, he's so offended by this request, he decides to make the Israelites work even harder. So discouraged, Moses goes back to God and says, listen, this plan's not going to work. But God repeats 
his promise that he's going to rescue them. And in fact, it's right here for the first time in the Bible that we hear the word redemption. It literally just means to purchase a slave's freedom. But God here uses this word to describe what he's going to do for enslaved Israel. And God knows Pharaoh is going to resist. So he sends 10 different plagues, one after another, like turning water into blood, sending all sorts of pests and disease. These plagues are really severe. They are severe, but we need to understand that the story is presenting these as acts of divine justice against one of the worst oppressors in the story of the Bible. And they're all aimed at the purpose of rescuing these enslaved people and defeating the gods of Egypt. This all comes to a climax at the 10th plague, where God's going to kill the firstborn sons across all Egypt. Every house, it's pretty rough. It is, but it's also God's response for how Pharaoh killed the Israelite sons. Now, as you turn the page, you suddenly get two long chapters of detailed instructions for what's essentially throwing a dinner party with a recipe for a lamb. Yeah, but this lamb is super important. God tells the Israelites to pick it out and to prepare it to be eaten. And they're supposed to take its blood and then paint it all over the doorframe of their house. And anyone who is in that house will be spared from this final plague. And so this meal, which is called Passover, it commemorates this key moment in the story where God brings his justice on human evil, but also shows mercy by providing this substitute. This final plague makes Pharaoh angry and he demands that Israel gets out of Egypt, which is great. But suddenly as they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. He has a change of heart. But on top of that, we're also told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that? Well, what we need to remember is that over and over in this story, Pharaoh has already chosen to harden his own heart. And so at this point, Pharaoh, he's not just evil, he's become monstrously evil. Even his own advisors think that he has gone way too far. And so how is God supposed to deal with such an extreme form of evil? And what we see in this story is that God uses his power to lure evil into its own destruction. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in the Red Sea as Israel passes into freedom. And after this, we find the very first song of worship in the Bible as the people praise God for redeeming them. And it's in this story that the word salvation is also used for the first time, which means simply to be rescued from danger. Now that they're saved, you would think that everything should be great, but the story quickly turns. The Israelites start wandering in the desert. They're tired, hungry, lost. And you start to wonder, what's God doing? What were they saved for? And we learn the answer to that question in the very next story, which ties the two parts of this whole book together. I'm very grateful for those guys. They do an amazing, amazing job. Tim Mackey, the, he's one of the main guys. That's one of the voices you're hearing is Tim Mackey. He actually spoke... Uh, at our vineyard conference that we had back in Phoenix a, a few months ago, and uh, he's been incredibly gracious with us, and I'm I'm indebted to him for um, for just even even uh, understanding uh, Passover in a new way myself. So um, here's the thing: every year families would gather, and that would be they wouldn't watch the Bible Project video. That technology didn't exist, guys, um, but they would tell the story. And, and, and there would be an opportunity to, to hear the story, to respond to the story. And part of that, part, a big part of that evening was looking back, looking back to 1,500 years and telling the origin story, the founding story of the people of Israel and how redemption and salvation, you, you hear those two words that are really important, redemption, which was to purchase a slave, a slave their freedom, 
and salvation, which was to rescue someone from danger. Those two words, it's all, they look back and they told that story. But in looking back, they were also anticipating a future day where God would do it again. Where what God did before, God would come and do once more. Because they experienced that they were still, that maybe they weren't under the oppression of Pharaoh and the Egyptians any longer. But now, from a human perspective, they were under the, the thumb of the Roman Empire. And in every, every generation of their people, they would experience some sort of oppression from the outside but there was also an oppression from within. They recognized that they didn't have the capacity to obey God's law. They recognized that that they had goodness in their hearts at times, but it wasn't consistent, that they were also capable of great evil at times. And and they recognized that, that, that the world itself was under bondage, under disease and death and decay and injustice. So part of telling the story of what God did before was anticipating that God would do it again, that God would set them free with ultimate deliverance from oppression, from slavery, from disease, from injustice, from evil, from death. And so in the story being told, there was scripted lines that were spoken and scripted responses that were spoken back. There's also some key elements that were part of the meal itself. Just like as we gather, there's traditional things that are part of every Thanksgiving meal. There was, tradition, there was key elements that were part of every Seder meal. So here's, here's four key elements. There were bitter herbs and roots, or bitter herbs slash roots and salt water. So think horseradish and then salt water. What this symbolized during the, the meal and in the telling of the story, it symbolized the bitterness of slavery and the tears that their ancestors shed. There was the sacrifice in spotless land that we saw here in the video. That symbolized that a substitute had died in their place in order to give them life. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But you realize that that in every household where a lamb had been sacrificed and the blood had been placed around the doorpost of the home, that that lamb died instead of them. It was on someone's behalf. It was a substitute. There was bread was part of every meal, although it was a different kind of bread. It may have looked a little bit like this, which is kind of wimpy when it comes to bread, right? The bread at Passover was never like, oh, that's so good. When we get together for Thanksgiving, my mom makes her homemade rolls. She may not make them all year, but she makes them for Thanksgiving, and they're special because they're amazing. At Passover, they had matzah, and it was special not because it was amazing, but because it had no leaven in it, no yeast, and there was a whole story associated with that. So we'll come back to that in a minute. But here's what it symbolized. The bread it actually symbolized something for them, and that's that it was the most, the, the most basic sustenance of life. Think about when their ancestors wandered in the wilderness and God gave them daily manna, bread. So, so what, do you just, what do you need to function daily life? You can live without vegetables for a while. You can live without meat. You have to have something. The basic staple for most of the world throughout human history has been bread. And so this, was, this is what it represented. There's something that you take in that gives life. And lastly, there was wine. It was a part of every meal. There were typically, during a Seder, there would be four cups of wine. And here's the thing, and I want you to, to, to catch this, because 2,000 years after this meal was given by Jesus, we've come to understand that the wine at communion represents Jesus' blood. We, you don't have to even be a follower of Jesus to know that that's what it represents. The cup of of wine at their table did not represent blood. 
It represented God's abundance and God's blessing. So wine, wine was always symbolic. When, when God provided wine, it was a symbol, a symbol of that God had blessed them, that God had given wine to gladden men's hearts. It was a sign that, that God's blessing was upon people, prosperity, trying to, to relax and celebrate. That it, it did not represent blood. That would have been so offensive to them. Okay? So, um, when Mark said a moment ago that the two disciples were sent to Jerusalem to prepare the Passover meal, this is what they're doing. They're getting these elements together, the bitter herbs, the salt water, the sacrificed lamb, the bread, the wine. Verse 17. When it was evening, he, meaning Jesus, came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful. And they said to him and to one another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So here's the thing. Jesus has been planning this moment. In fact, I think it's in the Luke version of this. Jesus says, long have I planned to have this meal. Long have I desired to have this meal with you. Because he's taking everything that's about to happen and he's injecting the meaning of his death into this meal that will be experienced again and again and again. But he's first of all giving it to these 12. And he's planned for this. He's observing the typical Passover tradition. He's saying some of the same things they would always say. But he goes off script. He reinterprets significant parts of a meal that, this is bold. This meal has been happening for 1,500 years, and he just starts rewriting it. And so he goes off script, and, and, they're, and they're all surprising things. The first departure is that he's leading his family through Passover earlier than everybody else. He's doing this on Thursday night. And real quick, historically, uh, the rest of Jerusalem wouldn't be taking Passover, wouldn't be eating the Passover meal until sometime on Friday. But Jesus, the, the reckoning for the Jewish calendar is, and the Roman calendar as well, is that what time did, a, did one day end and another day began? Was it sundown? We have this arbitrary, we think at midnight, that's when one day is over, the next day begins which it's in the middle of the night. I don't know why we, that's arbitrary. They said when the sun goes down, that day's over and the next day begins. So Jesus is going to eat the Passover meal with his disciples on Thursday night. Technically, it is Passover has begun, even though the rest of Jerusalem won't be eating it until several hours later. But Jesus does it now because several hours later, when everyone else is receiving the Passover, he'll be on the cross who already have been executed by the Romans. Jesus has to do this when the rest of Jerusalem is partaking of the Passover meal because he will already be on the cross. But not only that, that's, that's the first expression of Jesus doing something off script. He has his disciples kind of wondering, what's, what's going on here? But then he starts making these dark and depressing predictions. Remember, this is a celebration meal. Does anybody have that family member who shows up for Thanksgiving or Christmas and just ruins the meal by saying something completely inappropriate. You have that person in your family? You don't have to raise your hand if they're sitting next to you. 
Or maybe you are that person. Here's this, supposed to be this raucous celebration. This is, the, this is the pinnacle of the Hebrew calendar. And Jesus is saying some dark, depressing predictions. But this is really important because he wants them to know that what's about to happen, he is aware of and he's choosing. When Jesus' life is taken from him by the Romans and by the Jewish authorities, it's not that it's being taken, it's that he's choosing to lay it down. He's not surprised by this. That's so important. Verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Now this bread, we talked about this a minute ago. This, is, this was called, during the Passover Seder, it was called the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate. And it wasn't your normal bread that was full of yeast and, you know, leaven and all the, the good things that helped make it wonderful. But it was unleavened because their ancestors had eaten the meal in a hurry. They'd eaten their meal in haste. And so if you're, if you're uh, not able to proof the bread or, or see it, you know, leavened, you have to take some time. Do you, you make bread? I used to be a bread baker. I used to make the dough for the next day's bread the night before, so it proofed for like 20 hours. They didn't have 20 hours. They didn't even have two hours for a quick-rising yeast because they were supposed to eat that meal in a hurry. They were supposed to eat it with their hiking boots on or their running shoes and their backpacks with their camelback because you're going to the desert. They were supposed to be eat that meal ready to go. And so for whenever they retold the story, they ate bread that was unleavened because there wasn't time for leaven. Interestingly, it was also pierced and striped. So as the meal began, the head of the household would, would bless God. He wouldn't, you know, we tend to bless the meal. We pray a blessing over the meal. The, the host at a Passover would bless God. This is one of the things that, 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 that when it says Jesus blessed the bread, or blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them, and it said, take this my body. What he would have said from the script, would have, he would have said this, blessed art thou, O Lord our God, king of the universe, who brings us bread from the earth. It was scripted out. Each person knew their part because this was a shared meal, and they did this every single year. Head of the house would break it, bless it, bless God. Jesus starts well. He, he's, he's following the script. He's doing what he's supposed to do. His disciples are tracking with him. They're, they're savoring this time-honored tradition. If they're not savoring the bread, they're at least enjoying the tradition. And then Jesus goes off script again. He says something very jarring. He says, eat this it's my body. Here's what he's doing. He's teaching them the meaning of what's about to happen. A meaning that they're going to be able to hold on to and ponder and re-experience after, after his resurrection. And here's what he's telling them. This bread that symbolizes, this is, this is the most basic element of life, that you take this in and it sustains your life. He's saying, I'm going to be broken so that you can take me in, so that you can, your life can be sustained. Meal continues, verse 23. Then he took a cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. A typical Passover Seder, there would be four cups throughout the, throughout the night. Each one would be, there would be a, a script that was said, there would be a blessing that would be prayed, and then there would be this kind of cheers, and everyone would drink. And this is likely the third or the fourth cup. Mark, again, Mark's doing this abbreviated thing. But here's what would have been said. May you be blessed, Lord our God, King of the world, who creates the fruit of the vine. Cheers, and everyone drinks. So they do this. They're following the script. Jesus says that he, he, he says the blessing. Everybody cheers. They, they drink. And then he says, um, that's my blood that you just drank. Which for a, well, again, I think that's pretty gross for anybody to think about, but Jesus goes off script. He reinterprets this cup as representing his blood. And this has layers of meaning that these disciples, and these, again, these disciples, they're, they're steeped in the Exodus story and the Passover story and, and in their Hebrew scriptures. So they get to enjoy the meaning of this. For us, it's a little bit lost. You know, we, we, we come together to receive the Passover communion, the Lord's Supper, whatever we call it. But we take it and we've, we've reduced it down to this little, you know, <laughs> airline communion hermetically sealed, which is probably good in COVID times, but far different than this raucous Passover celebration. But the meaning is still there because it's really not about the specific elements. It's about the meaning and how Jesus has reinterpreted it. He reinterprets the blood of the lamb who's covering their ancestors shelter beneath in order to partake in the saving meal. God has redeemed and ransomed his people from Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb. My PowerPoint keeps locking up. I'm sorry. So Jesus reinterprets the blood of the lamb who's covering the ancestor's shelter beneath. So in the video we watched today, you saw that moment where the blood of the lamb was placed over the doorposts of the house. And anyone who came inside of that house was sheltered from the, the messenger of death that was sweeping across the land. And as we take that in, here it's two-sided. First of all, through the death of the lamb, that was an example of God's justice on evil. Okay, remember, they, and they, they showed this so effectively in the video, they said, look, Pharaoh had been killing every baby boy that was born to the Hebrew people. He was having every baby boy be, be destroyed. And so it was God's justice to respond in kind and say, okay, I'm going to take one child from every household, the firstborn of every household across the land, just everybody. But there's a way out. This is my justice, and here's my mercy. If you follow my instructions, there's a way out. The lamb is, so the lamb provides a way of escape. So here we bring together God's justice and God's mercy are brought together in this lamb. Jesus says, this is the blood of my covenant, which is shed to redeem many, to rescue many. He's alluding to the, the blood of this lamb and saying, those who come under the blood, come under the protection of my blood will be spared from the wrath that's coming from the judgment that's coming, the justice. From now on, Jesus' blood will protect from judgment anyone who takes refuge in him. That, that story, even going back to the Exodus story 1,500 years previously, that wasn't just for the Hebrew people, the, the Israelites, to do over their homes. 
If Egyptian people put blood over their doors, if they followed these instructions, their household was spared as well. And there was Egyptians who did that because they'd seen the power of God. They'd seen this battle taking place between Israel and Egypt, between their gods. Jesus says now he's reinterpreting it. Secondly, Jesus brings up this word of covenant. And this has to do with the, the promises of the Hebrew prophets from, from all throughout time that was anticipated. There was coming a time when God is going to establish a new covenant. We see this specifically in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We're going to look at the, the Jeremiah passage here. But Jesus says that his blood will, will be shed to seal a new covenant. Here's what, again, his disciples knew because they were steeped in the stories of their people is that when God made an agreement with mankind, it was called a covenant. It was an agreement between God and mankind, between his people, that it was sealed with, with the, the shedding of an animal's blood. And Jesus said, the new covenant that's coming that I'm establishing to replace the old one won't be sealed with the blood of an animal. It will be sealed with my shed blood. His disciples would have understood him to be saying that only by shedding his blood could a new covenant replace the former. So we're going to look at that in just a moment. There's one further clarification that Jesus offers us to explain why he must die, and it was, it's included in the Matthew story. Matthew tells the same story, and he adds this. Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In doing that, Jesus just reinterpreted the one more element of the story. So the story was that... The, the Hebrew people needed to be rescued from Pharaoh and from Egypt, and they had to be rescued by the shedding of an animal's blood. Jesus is reinterpreting every one of those elements. And so now it's not just the Hebrew people, it's all people came to give his life as a ransom for many. It's now for all people, and now it's not the shedding of a lamb's blood, it's the shedding of his own blood. But who's the enemy? It's no longer Pharaoh. It's the bigger, greater enemy behind Pharaoh. It's sin itself. The enemy from which people need to be rescued and redeemed, the enemy who enslaves and makes our lives bitter, it's not Pharaoh. It's indwelling sin. It's indwelling sin that makes us, that prevents us from doing right all the time. The human, the human heart is capable of very good things at times but we're incapable of doing it consistently because we have indwelling sin. This is part of living in a fallen world. And so Jesus recognizes that the problem that needs to be dealt with is sin. It's rebellion that leads to death, sin that causes us to oppress one another, each of us becoming our own little Pharaoh. And yet something about Jesus' shed blood and the new covenant that it seals and ratifies can finally conquer this enemy. And all those elements come together in this new covenant. So here's the covenant. Here's, here's one promise of what was coming that Jesus is saying, okay, it's here. It's now. It's happening. It's Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. You see, they were incapable of keeping the covenant. They tried at times, they aspired to at times, but they were incapable of keeping it consistently. Verse 33, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah anticipates a a change that goes to the very core of who people are. God said, my my people couldn't keep the first covenant, so I'm going to effect a change where I'm going to write it on your hearts. Ezekiel tells the same story, and he says, God will take your heart of stone and, and make it a heart of flesh. We saw that happening with Pharaoh. We saw how Pharaoh's heart was the real problem, and it was hardened. God says, through what I'm going to do, I'm going to make a provision for softness of hearts. Instead of making a provision for indwelling sin, I'm going to make a provision for the indwelling Holy Spirit where every single person can know me intimately because you'll be a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is, there's so much rich symbology that is, that is rooted in this meal. And Jesus is reinterpreting and saying, all of it points to me And all of that stuff in the past isn't just about the past, it's about the future. That's why he says, I'm not going to drink this cup again until the day I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Because it's anticipating a full redemption, a completion. This is what we wait for, church. This is why 2,000 years later, we're still telling the story because it gives us hope. What happened in the past gives us hope for what's to come. It gives it meaning. In going off script, Jesus reinterprets and reframes this meal to be his followers' way of retelling and also receiving or appropriating his redemption, his salvation, his covenant. And so the point of this is to not only understand it, it's not just about a a lecture. It's about experiencing it. It's about participating in it. For followers of Jesus, this becomes our story, our defining story, our origin story. It's our source of life and of hope and of faith. So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to take a moment to receive the bread and the cup. And so uh, if you're here in the room and you didn't receive communion when you came in, but you'd like to, if you'd put your hand up, our ushers will come around and make sure that everybody has some. I, I heard this morning, one of the ushers shared that, uh, that we've had people on Communion Sunday taking some of these pre-portioned ones with them when they left to take to a loved one who couldn't come, who couldn't come on campus. Maybe they were hospitalized or, or sick. And so you're welcome to do that as well. You can take an extra and take it home for someone. But I'd like to just dial down a little bit and ask you to to hold this in your hand and think about this. Jesus gave this as a meal to be repeated. Because here's something that Jesus understood about us. He understood we would need a first opportunity to respond to him the first time. And he also knew that we would need ongoing provision of grace that we would have to come back to being under the cover of his blood again and again. And I suspect that there's some this morning who feel unworthy of communion because you know that there's, there's a darkness inside of you. There's a, 
the, the thing that you keep coming back to that you hate, that you wish was different. But communion was never about deserving it. The whole point is that we don't. The point is that Jesus died as our substitute. He died in our place. And again and again and again, this side of eternity, we come back to this meal. We receive it again in faith. Some of you may be receiving this for the first time. Maybe it's the first time of really understanding what it means. Maybe you've received it before, but you didn't really understand what it means. That promise in Jeremiah is that God said, I will teach every one of you to know me. What that means is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ that every one of us can say, I want to come under the shelter of your blood. I want to be in your household so that I'm spared from God's justice and I can be one who receives God's mercy. That's appropriated. It's for everyone, but it's appropriated personally. So if you don't, if you don't know that you've come into, to use that metaphor, to come under the blood of, of Jesus covering, you can do that for the first time today. And, and the practice of the church throughout church history is that having responded and invited Jesus into our lives and, and, and received the gift that he offers of eternal life, that one of the things we would do is, is be baptized. So we don't have baptism today. We're, we're taking this sacrament today. Two weeks from now, we're going to receive the communion or the sacrament of baptism. We have a baptism tank right here on Sunday morning. We want to invite you. I'll put a slide up really quickly. If you would like to be baptized next Sunday, if you would just go to this uh, form, vineyardboys.org, you can sign up. Or you can also do it spontaneously that day. We'll make provision for that. But I want to challenge you. If you are receiving communion and you're understanding it for the very first time today and you're receiving it in faith, recognizing Jesus, this represents that you died in my place. Your body was broken in order to give me sustaining life. That your blood was poured out in order to cover my sin, in order to redeem my life from the slavery to sin. If you're responding for the first time, I really want to encourage you to be baptized. In fact, if, if this is the first time for you and you're understanding this for the first time, would you just raise your hand? Anyone? I have a hand right over here. Welcome. This is exciting. This is exciting. Anyone else? This is entering into a new spiritual family. This is entering into the household of Jesus. Right. As you hold the bread in your hand, listen to the words of Jesus again, and I'm just, I'm just going to read it and just give us each a moment to pause and respond. As they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body.
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Lord Jesus, as we gather today and we retell the story and we receive the story once again, God, thank you, whether we're receiving this for the first time or the thousandth time, that the way into life with you is also the way on. That we don't stand according to what we've done or not done, but we stand as those who have in faith received your provision. Lord, may we receive the provision of forgiveness and the provision of a new heart and dwell with the Holy Spirit, capable of growing in righteousness, capable of, of growing in love for you and love for people, capable of being freed from the, the tyranny, not of, of Pharaoh, but of a, a selfish heart, a rebellious heart. Would you continue to advance your kingdom, your will, in each one of us and through each one of us as we move out into our world. We ask these things in your name for your glory, for our joy, for our abundant life and for the sake of others. Amen. Amen. Church, um, our worship team is going to stick around and uh, lead us for a bit. We're officially dismissed. And so you are free to go. Um, if you have plans, you need to go get your kids. But if not, I want to invite you to stay. And we're going to have a ministry team available on both sides of the stage here. And there's some words for prayer right here. This is something our prayer team sent this morning that they specifically felt like God wanted to address. So if you need prayer this morning, or if you just want to stay and worship, invite you to do that. Um, ministry team will meet you on the sides up here. And apart from that, Go out and make the invisible God visible. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.